you can put out any idea on COVID, as crazy as it may seem, without any data, you can make that hypothesis, you can put it out, and what'll happen is it will stick. It will stick with people. And what'll happen is those that start trying to argue and deny it and say, that's crazy, gives it more power. Because now you've got intellectuals now saying that this is crazy, right? People start engaging in this discussion saying that is crazy or that shouldn't be, you know, there's no evidence for that. But the mere fact that we're doing that perpetuates it. Welcome to the Medical Matrix. I'm your host, Dr. Rosie Sender. I'm here today with my co-host, Dr. Erica Fisk. Dr. Fisk is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon, and I've said this before, but my favorite person to operate with. <laughs> and our guest today is Dr. Mohit Bhandari. And Dr. Bhandari is the current president of the Canadian Orthopedic Association. He is a professor and university scholar at McMaster University. He's a professor and associate chair of research at the Department of Surgery at McMaster University. He's the academic chair in the Division of Orthopedic Surgery. He's also the Canada Research Chair in Evidence-Based Orthopedics, Tier 1. He received the Order of Canada, and he is the founder and CEO of OrthoEvidence Incorporated. And I've also noticed he's hip enough to be on all the current social media platforms. <laughs> so today we are going to focus our discussion on the infodemic we have seen during the COVID-19 crisis and how to sift out credible information from the misinformation. And for our audience members, if there is anyone who knows anything about research, collecting data and sorting out the signal from the noise, it's Dr. Bhandari. So welcome, Dr. Bhandari. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, hello. Thank you so much. Is there anything that you'd like to add to that stellar resume? No, no. I think I can only disappoint. That's the problem. When you say all those great things, I just think I'm going to let everyone down here. So I'm going to be on my best to try to hopefully live up to all those nice things you said. Well, I'm sure that's not going to be difficult. So why don't we just start off with you telling us about OrthoEvidence, what it is and how it came about? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I've spent probably, well, 25 years or so, and it seems to grow every time I look back, but it's about 25 years now, thinking about research and thinking about evidence. And, you know, you have to be at the right place at the right time. I happen to be starting my orthopedic career at McMaster University around 90, 1994. Well, it turns out in 1990, Professor Gordon Guyatt, who, for those of you who are ever looking up and wanting to understand the history of evidence-based practice or evidence-based medicine. His name is probably central to that discussion. He actually coined the term EBM in 1990 at McMaster University. So I can't kind of wandered into it, right place, right time. And really, quite frankly, you fast forward, you know, into orthopedics, you finish up. I was finding myself having a really hard time keeping up with information. I don't know how everyone else does it, but, you know, it used to be in residency where we would read one top journal. And I'll use, for argument's sake, I'll choose the Journal of Bone Joint Surgery. But you would just look at the table of contents and that would be enough in theory because the perception was if it's in that journal, it's worth reading. And if it's in that journal, it's valid. And that's it. And there wasn't a lot of subspecialty journals that, well, they hadn't been developed in quite the way or they certainly weren't as robust as they are now. Now, for you to keep up with the current best evidence, arguably, if you really want to be broad, you're looking at about 100 journals a month, roughly. 
you'd have to keep up with. I mean, because orthopedic knowledge is now vastly distributed through all kinds of journals. That led me to, for selfish reasons, to say, oh, I got to find something that's going to help me, selfishly. And so ortho evidence just became a filter. I said, if we can find all of the randomized clinical trials, which to me were at least the filter for the best available evidence for a treatment in surgery anyway, you'd probably find them in more than just one journal. So we started the search and it turned out that, but you know, we started with maybe 50 journals and went to a hundred and now we're probably at two, 300 journals that we're screening. And you get roughly about 70 to 80 relevant orthopedic trials a month. Now, you wouldn't think that, right? If you were looking to talking to colleagues, say, well, there's not enough orthopedic literature, but it's actually out there if we do that search. The problem is most of us would never do that search. I wouldn't. So orthoevidence in short was born from that desire to find a filter. And so let someone else do the heavy lifting, filter it down to clinical trials, at least at a point you could say the evidence we thought would be pretty reasonable because you're filtering it down to a trial at least, and then you know summarizing it in a way that you can get that information out. That's the gist. We've done a lot more with it, but and I can share with you you know more as we go along. But that was the gist of why we did it, just to be able to keep up and have the best available evidence at our site. For those who don't know what the randomized controlled trials and why that is the best evidence, why, in your opinion, do you think that uh, literature and good evidence-based medicine should be coming from those randomized controlled trials? Yeah, and, and this is, you know, this, there's a lot of debate on, you know, what information we should be using. So when we took the focus of the randomized clinical trial, it wasn't at the expense to say nothing else is good. It was just saying if a randomized clinical trial exists, it would at least behoove us to say, well, we should at least be aware of them. We can decide whether you want to believe them or not. And there's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't. But the principle of why randomization is so powerful is, just imagine this experiment. You want to ex- you want to compare two different procedures, two two different surgical procedures. Let's just say, even more powerful is you want to compare a surgical procedure with a non-operative procedure. So let's just say you've someone comes in and they can treat their Achilles tendon injury. That's what I was going to say. The Achilles tendon yeah. ran the Canadian data. Yeah, <laughs> right. So it's a great debate, right? You say we can operate on your Achilles tendon, or we can put you in a brace and a cast, and you know over a period of time, and there's going to be strengths and limitations of both of those. There's going to be arguments in favor of both. What would be the best way to get to the truth on that question? So one argument would be is, well, I'll just do a case series. I'll just look at all my patients and I'll decide who I, who, you know, who gets it, who doesn't. And you say, oh, look, see, I treat all my patients operatively and they all do well. The challenge is, well, you didn't have a control group. So how do we know the people you didn't operate? How did they do? So, okay, okay, no problem. I'll advance that to a cohort study. The cohort study would say, I have a control. And you see, look, see, I, I had a bunch of patients that came into my clinic. This group got surgery, and this group got a non-operative treatment. And as you can see, the patients with surgery did so much better. The argument that people would say is, well, how do we really know that your decision to put people into both groups was the same? So when you're not, quote, randomly assigning them, how are you assigning them? Well, you're assigning them based on what your perception of who might do better with one or the other. So the surgeon decides who gets treatment A or B, or the patient decides, you know, I don't want surgery, so I want this. But it's not a random so there's still potential what we call bias. And bias, simply put, is a deviation from the truth. We're trying to limit that in research to the extent we can. So historically, you go back and say, if we could truly balance groups in a way where the operator, in this case the surgeon, and the people involved in evaluating the outcome, the outcome assessors, it could be the surgeon or it could be somebody else, are unaware 
of how that patient got, you know, put into A or B. It's hard when, when it's a surgical treatment and non-surgical, but you can still blind people and we can talk about that. But the fundamental power of randomization is balance. You try as much as you can to balance prognosis. And they say, well, what's prognosis? Well, prognosis is, are going to be the factors that are going to have someone do better or worse. So if somebody is, let's say, has lots of medical problems, has maybe potential poor skin, maybe a smoker, uh, potential diabetes, that person has a slightly different outcome with respect to a surgical treatment than someone who, might, who otherwise might have those. So you want to make sure that you don't have all of them grouped into one side or the other. Randomly, you know, putting them in two groups would hopefully balance prognosis. So people say, great, you have a balance of prognosis. But what makes randomization so powerful is Half the things we think determine outcome may be true, but the other half of the things we never even thought about may determine outcome, and we've never even thought to even collect that information. Randomization will balance prognosis for the things we know about and the things we just didn't even think to, to, to even collect, but it'll balance it if we do it right. Now, imagine a situation now where you say, listen, in a randomized clinical trial, two groups are by definition identical now. So if there's a difference, the only thing in theory that you could say could be attributing to that difference would be us because we're the ones who intervened with either one or the other. Everything else should be the same. So that's the power of the randomized clinical trial. It's this balance of prognosis. The rest is all there and, we, and they talk about the methods of doing it. But that is why a randomization is much more powerful than what we would say a prospective cohort in which the surgeon or the patient decides and you can imagine that would be creating what we call a selection bias. You know, who gets into the study? People who are a classic, another classic one is for hip fractures. People just always say, well, certain types of hip fractures do better than worse. You know, like where they say, well, you know, with a patient with a hip fracture, if they have medical comorbidities, you should wait. And therefore, those who have medical comorbidities tend to do worse. Well, yeah, they're prognostically going to do worse than those who went earlier and didn't have medical comorbidities. But so it creates this, this, false narrative. And that's why we try to do trials. There are some people who have made the argument that sometimes randomized controlled trials can lack the resolution to allow like an in-depth analysis of variability in treatment responses, right? So, and that's kind of, I guess, those are researchers looking at precision medicine. So what are your thoughts of on N of one trials? Yeah, it's interesting. So of all, like when, the, when I first started, Gordon Guide was a big proponent of the N of one trial. And just the argument there was, you know, like let's say in primary care, you have a patient who has a problem and you could say, oh, you know what I'll do is I'll try you on this medication, but I'll be blinded. So I won't know and you won't know what you got, but we have, you know, we'll make sure it happens. And you try for six weeks, you, you get off it. Then I'm going to put you on this other pill, B, and we don't know if it's the active or the sugar pill, whatever it would be, placebo. We'll try it again. And then we'll kind of monitor how you did over that period of time. So the, first of all, it's it's can't do that with surgery because you can't undo a surgery. So the problem is for surgical trials, it becomes very impossible and almost impossible to do that. So it has to be a chronic disease in which there's a resolution period, right? So we're now a little bit out of favor. So yes, you're trying to get to individuals. It may only work in some cases. So we're still going to be, you know, using the broader storyline of trying to get more patients in. And just for orthopedics, the end of one trial probably isn't going to be you know, you just can't do it. But if you transition that into something like the pandemic that's going on where you where you have a COVID patient, you're trying different medications and treatment modalities that and how are people responding 
because to get a, a randomized controlled trial right now, you know, it, it takes a lot of time and effort and a lot of subjects and people to do. They're doing that with the vaccines in some ways right now, uh, doing the randomization. But as far as the initial treatment of, it's almost a trial and error, the kind of the N1 where, you know, let's try the steroid, let's try vitamin D, let's try, you know, and because no one knows right now. I mean, do you see something different working in this this setting of a pandemic, or do you still think that a randomized control trial was is where we're going to be heading to get a solution for this? Yeah, that's a good point. So, I mean, if I take a step back to just COVID, right? So March 11th, you know, the world changes. I mean, February, I was in, I was in Mexico at a meeting planning all the things I'd be doing right now, and that didn't happen, right? So it, things change really rapidly. But if you look at what happened in COVID, we did a short little study that just looked at what was being published and how quickly it was being published. And this gets to the point of how do you get information out? There were 1,741 publications across 447 journals in 40 or 59 countries, I think, something like that, 59 countries, published over, by the way, 10 weeks. So in other words, you got to remember, like that virus didn't exist in December, right? So these were new COVID-related papers. So the median time from submission to publication was 10 days. There were papers being submitted and accepted and put in print, like right under the journal within five days, four days, three days, one day. So you can imagine all of that was happening. Now, the majority of that in that early wave, to your point, was it's not randomized trials. You, you, you can't do a randomized trial and, you know, within a, you know, a equivalent of an eight week period. You just can't. It's just going to be too hard. So what was happening is you're getting this massive wave of information that was categorized into one of three types, right? There was this noise, which you can argue, which would just be opinion, but uninformed opinion. So you could just say that, that, you know, that's the misinformation and that's a lot of it happening early on. Then there were the informed opinion. And, you know, by the way, in the hierarchy of evidence, expert opinion is still level five. I mean, if you talk about levels, the randomized trial being level one, the cohort being level two, a retrospective case control being level three, case series, so being level four, and then, a, you know, expert opinion, right? And biological rationale being five. That's what we were seeing lots of. Then there was the informed opinions that were still there, and there were less of those, but we can talk about what makes an informed opinion, I guess, in a crisis. And then there was this early, early beginning of early cases, exactly what you both have said, which is, you can't do randomized trials early on, but you can get the first case. Yeah, people were trying triple therapy and, and saying, we have five people in which this has worked, let's try it, right? So there was all this case series. That's really just level four evidence, but that's what was happening. People were starting to collect data for trials. By the way, there are about 600 to 700 trials now registered on clinicaltrials.gov looking specifically at COVID-related treatments. So 600, at least 600. And the last time I looked was about maybe 10 days ago. So that data set's going to come out, but that data set's going to come out in what I would say is a more you know, dampened second wave of information. So as a lay person, how do you navigate this? I mean, there's no ortho evidence or COVID evidence, you know, so, so to speak. And so here you have a community, and I 
if we transition to COVID and we're not supposed to go there, let me know. But it, it seems to be the biggest topic right now because you do get this flooding of information where, you know, people are getting information from social media, they're getting information from journals, and all these scientific studies are being highly debated by any means. You can find anything that supports your opinion one way or another. And it's it's a difficult concept right now to where where do we get our information in this type of environment. And and just to, just to piggyback on on Erica's question, and you can also answer this, I think, is that, you know, in an effort to publish quickly, less rigorous studies are getting published. And so it comes down to what do we trust and how do we sort through what is good evidence? And the truth is there's no great answer to this, right? I mean, but I think it's awareness. So if you look back at who was sirening this for decades, it's a paper in 2005 in Plus Medicine, I believe, by Professor John Yanudis. He is a Stanford epidemiology professor and has been longly, like long outspoken about the issue of why he believes most published research findings are false. Pretty provocative statement, and, you know, and he gets a lot of interest for that. It's a highly cited paper. But central to that hypothesis is two things. Small studies, and we can talk about that at, at some length, of why smaller sample size studies where when you have few people, you often get misleading results. But also central is hot topic phenomenon. So we're in probably the greatest recent history hot topic phenomenon where 1,741 papers COVID are getting published over a 10-week period. That's a hot topic. So the challenge there was, you know, people were accepting journals were at fault. And so were, you know, researchers knew that we can pivot to COVID on everything. And journals were looking at anything COVID-related is going to come through. And you probably are aware that around, I think, early June, there were two major retractions on the same day of two large studies on hydroxychloroquine, both which had said, you know, the stuff is dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. And New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet both retracted data. And these were heavily, heavily influential papers that that were retracted. That shook everyone because thinking, okay, no one is immune to this challenge that we're having. So what do you do? Right. And I think it's time. Like, I mean, so, so how do you sift through this? I mean, I, I think the earliest thing to do is the first one is you have to be aware that if you look at the randomized clinical trial as the ideal, and if you look at right now, there will not be a vaccine given to us unless there is properly phased through trial. So I think we've had two recent phase two trial vaccines that have shown promise. They're going into phase three, right? They have to be appropriately tested in a large sample of people and they have to be randomly assessed so we can make sure that we're actually doing uh, good by this, right? Any treatment that's been purported has come out from a randomized clinical trial. They're not purporting treatments out there, and well, most people aren't, in which there isn't a solid, grounded clinical trial comparative study that's been done. So I think, you know, when we're looking at remdesivir or hydrox or, or we're looking at a corticosteroid, they're the only two ones that have been shown in clinical trials. They've come from a clinical trial, not from an observational study or a case series, for example. So, but what do you do in that early phase? Like, if you have to look back, I think I think you'd go back, right? And say, well, how do we know? Like, because trials aren't going to come out. So what do you do in that period of time? I think you had a question, but I'll, I'll, I can stop there. To your point that it's, you know, you have the hydroxychloroquine trials, they've been debated, they've been retracted now. But isn't this somewhat of proof that science is actually working. I mean, science is a method. The peer review doesn't stop at the journal. You're providing data 
that now is at the scrutiny of the entire scientific community. And now things are evolving and maybe our, we're not going to hold on, cling on to what our initial data says, allow science and treatment to evolve so that we're not being biased because we had this one study that showed these promising results. But now we have data and it's it's almost proof that science does work, that these papers and this, this information is being debated on a large scale. And it is peer reviewed in a lot of ways because it's being published in journals. So even though there, there might be some falsehoods or maybe a little bit of a jump to conclusion or early results that aren't as great as a random RCT trial, but now you're putting it out there and now it's going to be under the entire scrutiny of the science community. It's it's but the method. I think that's true, but should it be published right away? Is there another way we can have a forum and discuss you know, thoughts and opinions before they're actually published for public consumption too? So let me say this to you. I mean, the, the key distinction, right? Why does a journal retract a paper? A journalist can retract a paper because they say, well, you know what, there might be differing opinions and, you know, the theory's advanced. Let's say, here's the theory as we know it and it's accurate. Because it's dangerous or it's unpopular. Well, so they retract it because there were over a high, I think, I'm, I'm going to get the number quite wrong, but it's well over 150. I think it was about 180 different scientists wrote a letter and said, we want to see the original data set of these papers because it's very critical. These are going to change a number, like hundreds of millions of dollars of trials are ongoing looking at this particular, one particular drug. And we're going to shut them all down. Like we need to know this is accurate. And what happened was, it wasn't that, oh, they have a difference of opinion. So we're, you know, we're, we're upset and we're going to retract it. It was the data that was put into the system wasn't verifiable. So they didn't trust the data at the core. So the, the journal, in many ways, had in their ambition to get this paper out, had pushed through stuff without, you know, and you can argue whose fault is it, but ultimately it's the author's fault, right? The author should be the one being able to give verifiable data sets. They, they, they didn't give up. So in other words, they said because of issues with the quality of the data, that paper was attracted. Now, the scientific community should always be challenging and questioning. And if you look at what's happening in COVID, you're seeing, you know, sort of the top 20 list of medications or, or potential treatments switching all the time, right? Because as people are learning more, some come up, some come down. So that's exactly how it should work. It doesn't help us though, right? And when you're in the midst of a crisis, you've got a ton and a ton of people. So then they say, okay, well, if you're in the midst of an infodemic, we actually surveyed people at, at OrthoEvidence and we said, you know, who do you trust? Like, okay, so there's like, if you're looking at somebody's opinion, who do you trust? And the interesting thing was, Individuals who are on the podium or are speaking, who are quoting research was, you know, 42%, you know, in terms of endorsement. And here's the interesting thing. Me talking about someone else's research made them feel better than me talking about my own research because, oh, that he would have his own agenda or she would have her own agenda. So therefore, we feel even more confident if you're speaking broadly about research in general. So the quote, trustworthy index was really heavily related to quoting actual data rather than just opinion, even though the opinion may be faced in data. And that was happening in that early phase. Right or wrong, the challenge is, is, you know, we can all quote data, but you've got to get to what's meaningful at that period of time. And it's really, really hard as information's evolving. So in terms of with the scientific community, should there be discussion on 
how to move forward with data gathering and publishing data that is credible, that we can rely on moving forward. Can we bring people together to talk about like guidelines? Like we have clinical guidelines to treat various types of ailments. And how about for this? Can we do that as well? Absolutely. So I think what's what's come of this is the word platform. So what's happening is rather than say, we're going to do one study at a time, we're going to create a platform. We're going to get hundreds, if not thousands of centers always onboarded and ready to flip from one drug to another. But the design is still going to be tested as a clinical trial. So what, what they're trying to do is say, you know, the efficiency and the time it takes to get ethics approvals for every site, all that stuff has to become really, really streamlined in a situation where days matter. And so you can't spend, you know, a typical trial, in my own experience, to get a center up and running with all the issues with getting ethics approvals and more importantly, getting all the contracting done could be seven, eight months. Just that alone, just getting a center to start. So that's been rapidly streamlined in this situation. They got to make sure they still have, you know, some degree of process, but platforms are becoming the new thing, which is a big network that can look at many things simultaneously. So who's involved in some of these platforms? Like who's coming together right now for like a COVID platform? Yeah, right. So what, what it is, is it'll often come from the you know, scientific community. So it'll be large institutions, large groups will come together, large foundations. So numerous large foundations are going to come together and say, we're willing to invest in other groups that are have a history and a track record of doing this. And more importantly, have the actual network because the network is the power. If you don't have a network that can actually recruit the patients rapidly, that's really important. And the other big challenge right now in COVID is it continually evolves where you can do the research, right? Because once the wave's over, to actually do COVID research, you need to have COVID cases and infections. So that's also going to change. Right now, the epicenter, you would say it for the most part, is going to be, you know, U.S. is pretty pretty important. And so it's, uh, you we, know, we're in not, no shortage of COVID patients <laughs> yeah, right now. So come on down. <laughs> as well as South America, right? South America is right now a big epicenter. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that was interesting too is with the COVID, I mean, there's a lot of competition, it seems like with who's going to get the truth and the answer first. And I don't know if that competition, the setting is, is helping or is it healthy for people to be working not against each other, but would it be almost beneficial to have that data pooled? and have different drug companies and different vaccines like, hey, listen, this is what we've realized so far and this is what we've learned. I mean, that's that's exactly, I think, what, what the call is for has been, you need all hands on deck and you need everyone sharing information. Probably more than other times, as much as it seems that everything is so competitive, there has been a really, really impressive degree of sharing. So you're seeing industry competitor groups working with each other because the truth of the matter is, let's just say there's a vaccine. And that's going to happen, right? I mean, there's... there's Are you conspiracy theory right now? There's yeah. already one or... <laughs> no. Who has it? Does China? I want to know. <laughs> I mean, there are many candidates, right? There are many candidates. Just published in Lancet, right? There's at least two phase two. Like the, I mean, they're going to move forward to a phase three. There'll be a vaccine at some point in 2021, maybe late 2020. You do seem to know something, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just tell me who it is. I have yeah. some money. I need the stock market. I, I mean, I still have loans. <laughs> so to supply the world, there's no way any one group can supply the world. So they're going to have to, I mean, work immediately with all kinds of groups, right? So they're going to be, you know, doing everything they can to get it out. And so, and so the other argument is who gets the vaccine? You know, all these, all these become the ethical and moral issues of the, of the landscape. In a competitive landscape, it would be they who have the money 
would get the vaccine. And industry is, is you know, you have to be very careful about how much profitability they put on this because that's another moral and ethical dilemma, right? I mean, to do that. But that's also different amongst different countries, right? I'm from Canada originally, but now I'm working here in the U.S. And there's a huge disparity in terms of healthcare delivery and who has access to healthcare, just in these two countries itself, right? So it's the, I guess, the big pharma groups that do end up developing a vaccine. Are they going to try to make it a little bit more of an equal playing field for all the countries around the world and who has access to that vaccine? Right. Well, I think in a free marketplace, you would assume that the goal is going to be profitability and getting access to who can pay for it quickest. However, or someone just going to say, I mean, you could argue the U.S. could buy up the world supply quickly if they decided to do that, right? I mean, that would be very doable. Uh, we've been kind of falling short in a lot of things. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, you could argue that statement. But I think there are so many checks and balances in place now, and there's so many other groups involved that there's going to be an element of equity that's going to have to be and it should be, because it's the truth of the matter is, you cannot have a stable, functional world economy, if that is the goal, if you do not have all members of that world economy healthy and safe and being productive, right? So that's going to have to be the pervasive messaging that goes out, and it is. And I think that there have been safeguards put in place to ensure that low-middle-income countries are getting access you know, rapidly as well. As far as I know, I mean, that, that's what I'm hearing and that's what I'm seeing. So in terms of what's been put up. So there are organizations that are helping out these countries? Yeah, exactly. So the Gates Foundation is the classic one of those that is putting a lot, we have a lot of control and they're working with many, many low-income country groups for manufacturing contracts, which would guarantee that those areas that get the manufacturing contracts would also be able to get vaccine. So... We're also assuming, though, that in all of these different countries that the manufacturing is going to be equal. Is there going to be any concerns about the quality of the vaccine development in the different areas of the world? Well, I think what will happen is, generally speaking, the front runners, like, let's say it's a Pfizer one of these big multinationals, they have plants everywhere for one thing, but they're also going to be outsourcing to many, many countries. You can imagine India, you know, India is a classic place where they have a high tech feel and they're going to have to meet all the, you know, all of the standards for manufacturing. I don't think that they're going to be rushing, but you know, you, you can't say no to anything because in an environment where there's a perceived global crisis, corners are cut. And uh, to say what we should be done and what will happen will be, I guess, for, for us to find out. In your opinion, how long does it take to have a good RCT play out? I mean, how long does that process take in a normal world and also in a COVID world? So personally, our trials from the time you've designed it, gotten it funded, which is could be years, to conducting it and writing it up and closing it out, several years. I mean, you're looking several years. So like we, we've had two large hip fracture trials come out in the last couple of years, one when New England Journal and one was Lancet, and they were both probably seven or eight years in development. And there were a couple of thousand patients, you know, total. So, and what you're seeing is that tenure being pushed into one year. And why? massive amount of funding being put out very quickly, right? So the threshold for money and being given to groups that could go with it was based on prior experience. So if there was a group of people that were have a history of working with vaccines, they're going to get money very quickly because it was like, okay, let's get you the resource and get you going. And once you have any information, probably more than ever, we've heard of the term preprint server. I, I don't think many you know, of us even thought of the term a preprint server. What is that? 
that was basically a small holding place that the minute we have data, we're putting it up there for immediate consumption by anybody. And then you'd see it, you know, published in the New England Journal, uh, you know, a few days later or Lancet or for orthopedics, you'd go to JBJS or some other journal, right? So it was a short holding place to say, we're not even going to wait the five days it's going to take for the journal. We want to get this information out because it's so critical. Now, there's a huge, huge issue with preprint server data because that's not peer review. That's just me putting up whatever I want. And there's no there's no peer review. You just put up whatever you want and people can consume it. It's the social media of science, basically. Yes, yeah. social media of science. Fair enough. I mean, I guess it does tell us that if there's enough funding for research or for a given trial, perhaps some of these RCTs, sometimes they could maybe happen on a quicker timeline than they do. Well, I think so. I think the biggest, I mean, if you look at the barriers to most trials, it's network for sure, Rosie. Like the big one is, do you have a big enough network you can recruit the patients? Do you have enough funding? Those are the two big ones because everything else is fast, right? Like recruitment takes two or three years, depending on, or a couple of years sometimes. They've been getting those down to like, you know, weeks, weeks. My follow-up question would also be the time frame or the number of patients. Is there a minimum level that is actually would make it qualify as a good study in your opinion? Like the power, right? Yeah. And the thing is, it's just, it, it's such a moving, such a moving stick right there because the truth is, like it's never big enough. That's the, it's just always the challenge we have. We're always wanting it to be a little bit bigger. So I'll go back to orthopedics, right? So the average surgical trial is how big? If you had to guess at a number. The average? Yeah, the average sample size of an orthopedic trial. 100, 200, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so see, I mean. A couple hundred. Yeah, so you already have an optimistic view of the average orthopedic trial, right? The average orthopedic trial is 80 patients. And I've, I've, had, I've had a slide I've used for 10 years. And I go back every uh, couple of years to check it. And it's like 80 patients, 85 patients. Yeah, they're outliers, but still 80 patients. Like, you know, there's a lot of 40 patient RCTs out there and you know them all, right? So that's too small. You know, probably 50 years ago or so, uh, Salim Youssef and Richard Pito, Sir Richard Pito, he was knighted, I guess, wrote a paper called The Large Simple Trial. And they said, you know, if you get above and they use the estimate of a thousand patients, you're probably getting there. And why is it so powerful to get above a certain number? It goes back to randomization. When do you think you truly have true balance in two groups? Do you think if you had 20 patients, let's take 20 patients who come in with an Achilles tendon rupture and you put 10 and 10 in a group, do you really think they're going to be balanced for all the things that could potentially cause them to have a good or a bad outcome? No way. Maybe 500 per arm? Maybe. But you know, you can argue it might be thousands per arm before you start getting a true balance of, you know, that there really isn't a difference between these two groups. So... It just gets down to when do we start believing we have a balance, truly have a balance. And I think it's bigger numbers. And I guess that's why we do these multi-center trials too, right? Just to get uh, our numbers to a statistical significant result. For COVID, if, if there's a trial like that, so in eight months, not even consider a vaccine before a well thought out RCT is in place. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait for the second round. <laughs> and even when a single trial comes out and said it's okay, Look at all the other things, you know, there's going to be the different variants of the virus. Is it going to work? And by the way, you know, we haven't even talked about the fact that the people only have, you know, an immune response for about 20 days. Like, you know, once you actually have it, you think, oh, you know, I've had, I've had COVID and they've looked at, you know, if, they, if they've looked at the asymptomatic. No, it was like 40% didn't have um, antibodies uh, after. Yeah, right. So the COVID challenge is a big one, right? So one is that even in the places that have had the highest Number. So if you look at, you know, what's happening in Florida, what's been happening in Phoenix, what's happening in New York, the reality is truly, it's only about four or 5% on average, right? Maybe a maximum of 8%. That means over 90% of people 
have not been exposed to, to, to the virus. Now, those who've been exposed to the virus, about 40% of it has come from asymptomatic transmission. So people just don't know they're walking around, they're exposing people. Then you say, okay, I've been exposed. I didn't even know it. I must have antibodies because I've been exposed. I'm, I'm good. Those antibodies only last for about 20 days. Then you're back to unexposed again. And that is the challenge that we are facing with COVID. I think one of the other things that doesn't get said enough is that this is an RNA virus. It mutates more often than I think people actually talk about. If it was a DNA virus, then it probably would be a little bit more stable. But this is an RNA virus. So how many times has it actually mutated since it first came, you know, into our existence? And I don't think that's talked about enough either. So, you know, relying on a vaccine. No, no. But then again, but it goes right back, Rose, to the point of the point, which is the randomized trials that probably still are going to matter as much as where everyone has this blinkered adherence to the randomized clinical trial for a vaccine and yeah, yeah, rah, 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 is going to be potentially some really important treatments. I mean, there are a bunch of other treatments that are much, that could have great promise, right? So the monoclonal antibody treatments that they're saying, right? So they're potentially of more interest, but they're going to be clinical trials. Like it's going to be, when we look at what's going to ultimately move the needle for us in a way that's going to say, you know, mass production, everyone should get it is going to come from the clinical trial. And if you look at what's happening right now with remdesivir, so you may have heard in the news that, okay, you know, they, they say, you know, treatment approved, you know, the first treatment approved in, some, in Canada saying it's the first treatment for COVID that's been approved. If you look at the actual data on remdesivir and you use principles of evidence-based practice, the confidence interval, it is a weak effect for sure, yet, yet it's being called this big treatment effect. It's not. The average effect might be big, but the actual confidence interval, it's consistent with a very minimal effect. And that's the problem. There is no one big treatment right now that's out there. So they're still looking, but they want to have some hope. And I think that's what we're, we're seeing pushed out a lot in the guidelines. Yeah, I'm very hopeful about the monoclonal antibodies. I, I definitely think that there's something there. I just think it's such a challenging environment for a normal person to know what to believe. And you know, I think they, the ortho evidence is such a huge stride in ortho in the field, but for the global picture or the national picture of just misinformation, it's such a challenging thing that we're all dealing with right now. How do you know what to trust and what to believe? All the news sources, the mainstream news sources, social media. I mean, I think that's where the lay public goes to for their information. And that's exactly what she's talking about, all the misinformation that... You're absolutely right. And, you know, and there, there's, been, there's a whole research program on how and why false information permeates and sticks with people, like really sticks. It's become a political tool, actually. But it's not sort of, oh, it's just, it's a very thought out political tool that's used. And here's the interesting point. You can put out any idea on COVID, as crazy as it may seem, without any data. You can make that hypothesis. You can put it out. And what'll happen is it will stick. It will stick with people. And what'll happen is those that start trying to argue and deny it and say, that's crazy, gives it more power because now you've got intellectuals now saying that this is crazy, right? People start engaging in this discussion saying that is crazy or that shouldn't be, you know, there's no evidence for that. But the mere fact that we're doing that perpetuates it. And, and it's, it's a, it's a proven approach that's being used in research as well. So that's the challenge we face is, how do you trust information, right? And, and every group in a crisis is going to make some missteps, right? The WHO has made missteps. 
Um, the CDC has made missteps. I mean, uh, clearly all the political leaders across the world, I mean, all of them have made missteps. I mean, look at what happened in New Zealand. And you can argue it was amazing what had happened, but look at the celebrations that had happened. We've, you know, crushed COVID. A week later, they have more cases. And then that's the point, right? It, you cannot celebrate too early because we just don't have enough information and we don't have enough knowledge right now at this point. It's evolving. And we'll only, when this is all done, be able to look back and, and retrospect and try to understand what worked and what didn't. Well, and I think it's easier for scientists to live with that, that the information is evolving, right? The WHO got some things wrong. The CDC got some things wrong. But as scientists, we understand that and we accept it. But the general public doesn't understand that. So I think that it makes them distrust information coming out of these type of organizations because they're like, well, you said this at this time. Now, why are you flip-flopping on it? But we know that that's science. And we know that that we're just, we're, we're experimenting. We're trying to figure it out. You know, we have to take steps back and then restart. We understand that, but the public doesn't understand that. Well, you know, in some ways you can almost look at it from that vantage point. So let's take a look at some of the policies we've made. The policies around physical distancing. You know, some people have said you're going to be full lockdown. I, I was just literally this about two hours ago talking to a couple of surgeons from Columbia, Bogota, who were telling me that they are now entering another 120 day full lockdown, like lockdown that is policed. It's, it is a horrible time. They've had more cases in one day than they had over a three month period. So that's, that's how significantly things are changing in, in somewhat around the world. Now, based on what evidence? Just you know, like, so when we talk about policies around, okay, we want you to do this. We want you to put masks on. Everyone's going to put masks on. You know, people question, and you know, there's all kinds of questions happening around people's varying degrees. Why? Because we're not unified in it. And we're not unified in it, largely, quite frankly, because there's, it hasn't been tested the same way we would test for a drug. When you test for a drug, the community comes together and says, listen, we all, we all get it. There's a big study. It was trialed and controlled. It either worked or it didn't. It worked. Here you go. We'll start using it. But any of the, quote, policies around physical distancing, around how we're going to do it, around masks, that they're not, they're just being told. They're being used. So there is a, you can argue that there's some degree of skepticism around that because it hasn't been, it's, it, it hasn't been tested the same way we test drugs. And, you know, you can argue, why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we doing a trial where you would look at varying degrees of distancing to really figure out what works because there's a ton of harm that comes from quarantining somebody for 40 days. Like there's a ton of harm unintended. Now we could discuss that for two hours probably. So yeah, I mean, that's another public health crisis. Right, but, but you get yeah. to the point, right? So clinical trials, you know, are being, you can argue being overutilized and uh, well, who knows if they're ever being overutilized, but they're being used a lot and they can be dangerous because a small randomized trial is actually believed, you know, in our field, right? And and so a large cohort of 10,000 patients that's a case series will be dismissed when someone gets on a podium and talks about 100 patients treated one way or the other, and they believe that stuff. So that's dangerous too, like, you know. But if you do a well-designed experiment, you randomize patients, you conceal allocation, you blind them, you, you have appropriate patient important outcomes, and you do it in a way that's trustworthy, that can be a very powerful tool. And I think that's what we've got to be trying to get to. And trying to make that for all of our decisions, including our policies, which don't seem to have that. Do we have any hope? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always hope. There's always hope. I'm starting to feel a little pessimistic right now. I think we'll be back. I'm pretty sure we'll be back in 2021 talking about this. And we'll say, I'm, 
thought we'd be over this by now, but nope, we're still here. So, uh, so that didn't sound like hope, though. <laughs> no, I mean, if, if you look at where we are, like, like if you look at reality, again, using the randomized clinical trial as at least the workhorse, we're not likely going to see a definitive answer to a vaccine in the next six months, right? We're just not going to see it. I mean, they're at phase two now, so phase three is going to be another at least several months. That's one. We're not likely going to see a major breakthrough treatment either in the next six months because there's big trials are running. So what does that mean? What are you left with? You're left with the non-pharmacological management of COVID, which is some degree of distancing, possibly, you know, you continue with your hygiene and you continue with mass plus or minus, depending on, you know, what risk you're at and what kind of groups you're in. But that's it. And taking care of yourself, I think, just making sure that, you know, uh, yeah, mentally and physically taking care of yourself and keeping yourself as healthy as possible. Right. So what would you suggest to people outside the scientific community? Where do they go for information? Because, I mean, there's not going to be a lot of, you know, our friends who aren't uh, scientists who are going to go to research papers or understand how to synthesize the information or distill it down to a way that they can understand it reasonably you know, and, and, and it is hard because, I mean, so much of it is based on trust, right? Isn't it? I mean, you have to have some degree of trust and you have to believe that. And I still think at the end of the day, for the most part, for the most part, if you're doing it, you know, you, you don't go in with a, you, you might go in with a hypothesis, but you're generally thinking, I don't know. There's equipoise. I really don't know if one is better or the other. And I'm hoping we'll figure it out. So where would you go to get sources like that? It's still it's still going to have to come from. I mean, most of us are going to get it still through some channel of social media. Someone's going to be bringing information from high quality sources. I think still think the high quality sources, despite the challenges that many journals have had, are still a place where there's someone else checking the response. So yes, the New England Journal and Lancet had some, you know, have had a retraction, but by and far they've also provided a lot of meaningful information. Anything that's relatively important is going to get to big journals. And in our field in orthopedics, you'd, you'd still go to the peer review process. Like, so for example, in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, there was a COVID center. I, I could see how quickly things were getting done, but they were getting done still with some element of peer review. I just think you just want somebody else, if you're, if you're not comfortable or in the language of science, that would have you know, double-checked things. That's all. And I think that's still going to be the source. I mean, other people will grab that stuff, but I think that's what it will be. So not Fox News. Or your favorite YouTuber. Yeah. Your favorite YouTuber, yeah. I feel like we're just kind of in this this time where everybody is almost doing their own like randomized controlled clinical trials. Like I'm going to personally wear a mask and if I don't get sick, then that's what I'm going to do. But and that's the end of one trial that we were talking that's about, That's the end right? of one trial. Everybody's yeah. their end of one and, and their peer review is their social media page, their Twitter account, you know. No, is are my friends going to look at me funny because I'm wearing a mask? No one else is wearing a mask. You know, you're getting all this constant feedback from not scientific sources, but sources that matter to each end of one. And everybody's doing their own random trials because, you know, we know better. Yeah. And so that's the age that we're in right now. And that's what we're fighting to provide information to people in a in a safe way. Yeah. And to add to that, actually, you know, we have all these health tracking apps. You know, and the the Fitbits, I, I know so many people who track every single thing that they do, like what they're eating, how they're sleeping, what are their oxygen levels when they sleep. Like, there's so many people that are doing their N of one 
data collection like on a regular basis, right? For, you know, health purposes, I guess, or I'm not sure what motivates them. But I think we're getting used to being like that, maybe. I don't know, in this digital age? I don't know. Digital age, but also I think that in order to affect change, then something tragic almost has to happen personally to someone for you to have you know, to see it or to to know that something is real, it has to almost affect you personally. And that's just the age that I think we're in. And if, if you look at kind of what happened historically, right? And historically really is months away, and we're not talking years yet. This is just really since March. There was such strong messaging and the early data all came up and said, you know, who's at risk? The elderly, the vulnerable, the immunocompromised. They basically, in many countries, became cocooned. They, they, they just, everyone, like families who are large families, okay, I want my parents, I want them to be protected, and we're going to protect you. And, and cultures were just protecting their elderly, for the most part. Probably the first time in many cultures where, you know, they've been the center of focus of well-being. What's happened? Well, what's happened is they're still relatively protected, and they're actually hypervigilant. I mean, most are, because they're concerned and they're aware and they understand the implications, because it was the number one messaging that went out from all the research and all the messaging that was, that was uh, media-related. The young, however, seem to feel invincible. So the younger seem to invincible. So what's happened now, if you look at the, all the waves that are happening across, you know, sort of the U.S., but also in Australia, also what's happening in Colombia, it's all young, the younger individuals are out. They're the ones out and they're getting it. And so they're seeing the second peak of, let's say, the first wave. It's a different demographic now, a rise in a different demographic. And that demographic now is at risk of reinfecting or infecting the elderly through a different pathway. And so the grandchild goes out, comes back unknowingly, and then infects you know other people. That's kind of the concern now. And that's the group that is heavily social media focused. And quite frankly, 98% of them are healthy and don't have any issues in, in the sense of like, they are clear, right? Because, you know, in absolute infection rates are 2%. But the concern ends up being, though, we still don't know the long-term manifestations of this. No one knows you know? it. You know, no, we do. it's so young, we don't know anything about it. But if you see that same 35-year-old, you know, average hospitalized patient, and if you start seeing the death rate turn it. I mean, that will get somebody's attention. Like, okay, well, this can affect me. This is my end of one. I saw my friend, you know, this mm-hmm. happened. What's it going to take to affect change? And I hope that it doesn't have to be something so, you know, so drastic or negative to happen in order for to get through that this is something that's serious. But we also have to take responsibility. And that's like, us as individuals, you know, also uh, news sources and everything to be disseminating information that's actually accurate too. Because, you know, there were a couple of news articles that I saw on younger individuals getting COVID and dying. Like we're talking 18, 19 year olds. Oh, no previous medical issues, right? But if you dig deeper into it, like one of them was diabetic individual. But that wasn't in the news article because there's an element of, is this sensationalism, right? So we need transparency. You have that fear and that that motivation to get more clicks or, you know, who's going to read my news article because this is something that's so atrocious, you know, know, and that's our society feeds off of it. And ultimately, the thing we can be doing, if I go back to the absolute focus of what we've been talking about, is if we get the way to get rid of that first wave of just opinion and nonsensical opinion in one way or non-evidence-based opinion is to get high quality evidence rapidly out there. So 
and mobilizing as fast as you possibly can to come up with the answer. Because once there's an answer, people will rally around the answer because it becomes harder and harder. But in the absence of high quality evidence, it's anyone's game. And I think the challenge and the learning point is how do we take that second blunted wave of you know true experiment and push it as fast forward as we can and decrease as many barriers there was a point in which there were over 120 independent trials on hydroxychloroquine. There should have been one large platform working together, but you learn when there's 120 of them that they're not working to the same purpose. And so that is a learning experience, right? Remdesivir had 70 trials or something, like, you know, all trying to, because once it became interesting, everyone jumped on it. They just pivoted, but they weren't working together. They were working in silos initially. And I think we've become more platform focused now. Just for you yourself, you've made a tremendous contribution to evidence-based orthopedics and other areas of medicine. You founded, you're the CEO of OrthoEvidence. You received the Order of Canada. You're now the president of the Canadian Orthopedic Association. And I saw that you recently won the Kappa Delta Award for research from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. And now I feel there's an autobiography coming, but... <laughs> no, no. The first time you win, it's tough, but the second time you win, it's oh, there you go. That's where it is, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what's next for Mo Bendari? Honestly, I wish I could actually tell you I, I knew that. I used to plan ahead a lot in my 40s. Now I'm over 50, 51 now. So I take things much more, uh, I wouldn't say day by day, but year by year. So I'm not planning much, but I will tell you the the approach I'm using. And the approach I'm using is basically do everything I possibly can, like to try new things. So that's it. Whatever comes out, that door opens up, I'll try new things. I'll have fun. I think I have enough control of my schedule to have some fun. And you can use that as the P word, the passionate word, but find stuff you like and do it. I do things like now, which I'll invest in what I call the 20%. Maybe you and I have talked about this. I think we have, Rosie, but... Yeah, we have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. for the 20% of things that give you 80% of your joy. So I'll really try to make sure I don't give up that 20%. And then uh, just accept the fact that not everything's going to work out. So I'll, you know, push and push and push. And then right now, it's, you know, starting again. So I'm really kind of starting. I, I left my head of orthopedic position... Uh, just four weeks ago. So when you gave me that title, I said, oh, it's kind of nice. I, I, forgot what, I forgot what it sounds like to have that title. I don't have it anymore. But I, but I wasn't going to correct you, actually. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Okay. Um, but it's four weeks since I have that. But, but I left that at seven years rather than 10 because I felt that, you know, I think there's something else out there. I don't know what it is. But I promise you that what happens in the next several months, if something happens, you'll be the first to know. And all you got to do is, Perfect. All you gotta do is follow, just follow me on Instagram, follow yes. me on LinkedIn, and you'll know, right? <laughs> Or I'll even Snapchat you. I'll even Snapchat you. Okay. For those okay. of us who want to follow you and some of our listeners, how do we get a hold of you on platforms? Oh, yeah. Well, so, I mean, actually, the, the platform probably, but the easiest one to get a hold of me is just good old-fashioned email. You just type in Google my name. My email is everywhere. I don't hide it. So you can find me mm-hmm. um, at McMaster University. Wow. And if you like, <laughs> yeah, just easy. It's very easy. And then if, you, if you're on LinkedIn as a platform, I tend to post academic things or things that are related to personal growth on that. So it's, it's under, I think it's under Mohit Bandari, the name. Dr. Bandari is on Instagram, but he's always mountain biking. That's his thing. Oh, mountain biking. Oh, wow. What happened was I transitioned. I, I did the classic transition, which was, okay, I'll start riding on the road. I said, oh, it's okay. And then I started riding flat. I said, okay, I'll get a slightly bigger tire bike and ride flat. And then someone said, oh, you can go up and down a bit. I said, oh, okay, I'll do that. And then someone said, well, why don't you just take you know, a lift to the top and go down. I mean, you don't even have to climb a hill. He said, yeah, I'll do that. So I've just transitioned now to downhill. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> that's the best. 20%. Right? 80% of the joy is writing down. So. <laughs> like, why would you want to climb? I know this. I'm, I've offended already half your audience who are riders thinking, oh my gosh, he's not a rider. He's not climbing. But I'd rather go downhill. So I do many things on an average level. Trust me. Okay. It's all good. It's all good. Yeah, it's all Except good. your entire professional career, which is beyond, <laughs> beyond <laughs> average. It's way beyond average. So um, it's, it's very impressive. No, but I don't have... Yeah, I do not have any other real aspirations, truthfully. And the thing is, if I'll end it on this, and I'm sure you might have, you know, unless you have something else to ask, but, you know, the most poignant thing that I remember and to this day was standing beside two women at the Order of Canada. And so, you know, we're all just waiting. There's about 30 of us going to be inducted. And she looked over to me and she just simply said, oh, you're a young fella. And I kept thinking, really? I feel like, you know, I feel like I've lived my whole life. And she said, you know what I want to do? And she's about 85. And she goes, you know what I want? I just want to get back. I just want to get back home and get back to what I do. She, she's running many foundations and done tons for Canadian, you know, helping young women in need. And it dawned on me that nobody at that thing had actually ever aspired to get the Order of Canada. They just did something they felt really, really passionate about. And it was like this theme of the more you plan about what you're trying to do, which I used to think that way, isn't really the pathway. Like it's just, you just stay, stay engaged in something you're doing at the moment. And those doors open up and opportunities happen. So they happen. So I'm, I'm using that new psychology to see what happens. Okay. That's great advice. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you, Dr. Bandari. And uh, yeah, we're really honored that you joined us today and help us distill all the information that's out there. Well, thank you very much. Uh, enjoyed the discussion. This show is being produced by StudioPod. And for more information, go to studiopodsf.com.